0: Hi, I'm Pastor Jason from Yokoan Baptist Church, and this is a sermon recorded at one of our Sunday morning services. Thanks for joining us today. We hope you're encouraged by this message and that it draws you closer to God. Enjoy. Now, this Christmas, we're looking at a cast of Christmas characters. So, last week was the shepherds. Next week, we're looking at the wise men. Now. Both of those guys you could consider, you know, good guys in the story, right? Today we're going to look at a bad guy, uh, a bad guy called King Herod. Now, nobody wants to be the bad guy, do they? Everyone likes to think, oh no, I'm the good guy in this situation. Um, so I'm going to show you a, a video now. Um, and since you can't, since we can't go to, be- Road to Bethlehem this year, uh, this is when the vicar of Dibley and her little church did their very own um, road to Bethlehem. Uh, And I'm only showing you a couple of little bits of it because one of the characters, David Horton, had to play Herod and he was not happy because Herod's the bad guy and he doesn't want to be the bad guy. So let's check out Herod. Herod the Great was born around 73 BC. Uh, He wasn't a Jew by birth. His family was from Idumea. Um, that's a country to the southeast of Israel. It used to be called Edom. And so you may have heard over the years of the, the battles between the Israelites and the Edomites. Um, it was named Edom after one of Jacob's sons. Remember, Jacob had two sons. One was called, sorry, Isaac had two sons. One was called Jacob and one was called Esau. All right. Uh, and Esau, because he was red headed, came to be known as Edom, which means red. And so they became enemies of each other over this time. So Herod's not a Jew. He's actually come from a neighbouring group that's, uh, that's opposed to them. But his father was friendly with Caesar. And so Caesar declared him to be the king of the Jews. Now I can imagine to a Roman emperor, you know, all those Middle Easterners over there, they're all just the same, aren't they? You know, what do we know? You know, he, did, he obviously didn't care. So Herod, when he's about 36 years old, became king. Some historians think that he converted to Judaism, um, but most believe that was just for a show because he continued to live a life of debauchery and decadence. And he wasn't popular among the Jews. They didn't like having a king over them who wasn't a Jew, for one thing. But also, he was the puppet of their Roman conquerors. Herod tried to gain their favour. He had this really ambitious building plan, uh, including the magnificent temple um, which the people loved, but it didn't translate into love for Herod. But it came about because Herod charged enormous taxes on the people. And not only that, because he was a puppet king, and there were always uh, you know, Jewish rebels trying to overthrow uh, the Roman Empire, it meant that Herod was the one that had to put down their revolts, and he used that by means of an extensive uh, group of secret police. So you can see that he wasn't really kind of the most popular chap in in Jerusalem. Later on, his son, who was also called Herod, was the guy that would put Jesus on trial before his crucifixion. Now, because of this animosity, because of the way the people thought about Herod, he became really paranoid about holding on to his power. Uh, so much so that he executed several members of his own family, including one of his wives and several of his children. So I mean, this guy is really paranoid and worried about losing his power. And so we, here we have this paranoid guy living the life of luxury, you know, just using and abusing people however he likes, and just loving the power. And along come these guys these stargazers from Persia turn up in his courts going, where is the new king of the Jews? So you can imagine, this story's not going to end well. Herod's not going to take this well. No wonder the story says to us, all Jerusalem was disturbed. Now, we read later on in the story of of Jesus' birth and... um, Next week, Charles is going to cover the, the story of the wise men. But Herod killed all of the male children, all the male babies, in Bethlehem and the surrounding villages. Now, some scholars go, oh, there's no real historical events outside the uh, evidence for this outside the Bible. Well, there probably wouldn't be, because when you look at it, the town of Bethlehem was really small. Children under two, boys under two years old, probably would have been about... 20 to 25, well, you know, so you can imagine if you were a Roman historian, a bunch of Middle Easterners that you didn't care about, and 25 children die, that'd be no big deal to you. But it obviously was a big deal to the people who were there, it was obviously a big deal to their families. So let's have a look at just two things that we learn from these events surrounding King Herod. Now, prophecy is a very interesting thing. Some prophecies are really clear and concise. You know, you read them and you know exactly what they're trying to tell you. But other prophecies seem to be very obscure and clouded in mystery. You know, and a lot of the time, you don't really know what they're trying to tell you until after the event. You know, it's often easier to look back in hindsight and go, oh, that's what he meant. It's easy like that. I mean, that's why I I don't do a lot of teaching on, you know, kind of end time stuff, you know, because those prophecies are so obscure and they're full of so much symbolism that really they're they're going to be a lot easier to understand after the event than they are before the event. And I'd rather preach what I know for certain than what I can speculate on. And so... The New Testament authors, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, seem to be able to pull scriptures out of the Old Testament and recognize them as prophecies about the Messiah that no one leading up to it might have realized. Uh, And I look at them and I go, wow, how did they get that? But this is what they discovered. And so, for instance, God said, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. And Matthew tells us that this is not just talking about the Israelites back at the time of the Exodus. This has a double meaning. It's also speaking of the Messiah that was to come. In the same way in in Jeremiah, we read about a voice is heard in Ramah, mourning and great weeping. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted. They're rather obscure prophecies, but in hindsight, they're very easy to see what they're talking about. And so we've got two fascinating prophecies here. One is telling us that God's going to call his son out of Egypt. Now, when the wise men turn up, and again, we'll get to that next week, one of the things they did was they turned up at Herod's court to say, okay, we're looking for the king of the Jews. They just kind of assumed, if I'm looking for a king, I go to the palace, right? And then Herod went and got the Bible scholars, kind of it shows you that he's not much of a Jew because he hadn't obviously read any of the prophecies about the Messiah. And so he gets the Bible scholars to come to him and say, okay, what do the prophecies say about about the Messiah? And they tell him, Bethlehem is the place where he's going to be born. So he sends these wise men off to Bethlehem. And so how could the Messiah be from Bethlehem, and yet how could he also be called out of Egypt? The two don't really make sense when you look at it kind of that way. But looking back, now we know. Now we know that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, and because of the actions of Herod, they fled to Egypt to a place of safety for a period of time before they came back. Now the second prophecy talks about weeping in Ramah, which is the, kind of the general area around Bethlehem. And again, it's only in hindsight that we truly grasp it. Originally, the prophecy was talking about the people who were taken into captivity in Babylon some 600 years ago. But Matthew tells us that God is also speaking about this incident around the birth of his son. Now, here's what I find interesting about these two prophecies. I'll keep you in suspense. What I find interesting about these prophecies is that they wouldn't have been fulfilled without the interaction of Herod. Now I'm not saying that God made Herod kill babies, that's not what happened. Herod was a horrible, paranoid person long before the wise men showed up. But God, who sits outside of time, knows all things. He knows past, present, future, it's all the same to him. He knew what Herod would do. Now, the people who wrote the original prophecies couldn't have even conceived that this non-Israelite king of the Jews would attempt to murder the Messiah. I mean, they couldn't have even conceived of that, but God knew. God knew in advance exactly what Herod was going to do. And Herod thought, well, in my power and in my greatness. I mean, after all, he's called Herod the Great, right? Right? I can stop God's plans. He's just had his, he's just had his priests come in and, and read him the prophecies of the coming Messiah. And he says, no, nah, I'm going to put a stop to that. I'm, I'm better than God. And so instead of defeating God's plans, Herod ends up fulfilling them. You know, Herod shows us that even the worst events and the worst people Can be used by God. You know, it's very easy for us, you know, when things are going really well to be going, Oh, thank you, God, life is wonderful. You know, when everything's falling into place. But what about when we're hurt, or what about when we're lonely, or if we're suffering, or just when things just keep going wrong? I mean, can you imagine anything worse than two dozen babies being murdered? I mean, that's horrific. And yet we're able to see that God uses these times as well. Um, Paul picks up this theme in a couple of places. Um, In particular in Corinthians, he said, uh, he's, he's talking about the Lord talking to him. The Lord said to me, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. So now I'm glad to boast about my weaknesses, so the power of Christ can work through me. That's why I take pleasure in my weakness and the insults, hardships, persecutions, and troubles that I suffer for Christ, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Now, you've probably, many of you have experienced this in your own life at times. I know I certainly have. You know, there are times when uh, you know, that I, that I have to do something for God and I feel fantastic and I'm roaring to go. But, you know, there are other times where I'm down, I'm injured or I'm sick or whatever it might be and I'm struggling. And I know that in my own strength, I can't do it. But it's often in those times that God's strength comes through and the ministry that I'm undertaking worked out way better than it would have done if I'd just done it in my own strength. Peter also says, dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that's come upon you to test you. As though something strange was happening. Jesus promised you will have trouble in this world. You will have tribulation. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ. So that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. We share in the sufferings of Christ And in turn, we share in his glory. We've just seen a physical demonstration of that in the waters of baptism. See, when David goes through the waters of baptism, when he was lowered into the water, uh, he's not only declaring that his old life is dead and buried, but he's also identifying with the death and burial of our Saviour. And when he comes up out of the water, not only is declaring, this is a great new start for me, he's also proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So you can see how David is identified with the sufferings of Christ and with the glory of Christ. Herod teaches us that no matter how evil, no circumstance, no matter how terrible, can't be turned to God's glory. Now the second thing this whole episode does for us, there we go, thank you, is that it sets up Jesus as the new Moses. You know, the parallels between Jesus and Moses are quite striking. Um. It's no accident that Matthew, who wrote this gospel primarily with Jews in mind, intended his audience to focus on this aspect. So, for instance, before he died, Moses said to the Israelites, and again, this is a prophecy of the Messiah. Yahweh, your God, will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. The Lord said to me, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their fellow Israelites, and I will put my words in his mouth. He will tell them everything I command them. You know, although Mark's gospel was the one that was written first, Matthew's gospel is the one that has been placed first in our New Testament. That's because Matthew serves as a brilliant bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Matthew is written primarily to convince those from a Hebrew background that Jesus is their promised Messiah. And one of the ways Matthew does this is by comparing Jesus to Moses. And like a typical Jewish storyteller, he doesn't just come out and say, Jesus is like Moses. He He paints a picture throughout the whole of his gospel. So for instance, just as Pharaoh killed all the baby boys of the Hebrews and only Moses was saved, so Herod kills all the baby boys in Bethlehem and only Jesus is saved. When Moses has his life in danger, he flees from Egypt into the desert. When Jesus' life is in danger, he takes the opposite journey and his parents take him into hiding in Egypt. And just as Moses returned to fulfill his ministry purpose and brought back his family, so Jesus did the same. We have just talked about Moses' prophecy. He did that at the same time as he was um, on the mountain Sinai. And as he was up there for 40 days and nights recording God's law, so Jesus fasted for 40 days and nights at the start of his ministry being tempted by Satan. Moses went up to a mountain to receive the law from God, the Ten Commandments. In Matthew's Gospel, Jesus goes up to a mountain and gives a sermon that includes the Ten Beatitudes. And Matthew, in fact, um, arranges his book around five... He he groups all the teachings. What you've got to realise about the Gospels, the way they're structured... There wasn't necessarily one sermon on the mount that Jesus said all those things. Matthew has grouped his different sermons in that way deliberately. And he's grouped it so that there are five groups of sermons and then the stories of Jesus around them. In the same way that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, Matthew sets up five books in his gospel. And so he groups the teaching of Jesus into these five groups uh, deliberately so that any Jew who was reading that book would have recognized, oh, this is a real parallel to the five books of Moses. The other thing we read is that Moses, through blood, was the mediator of the old covenant. So in Exodus, we read that Moses took the blood and dashed it on the people and said, see the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you. Through the blood, Jesus became the author of a new covenant. So Hebrews writes, "Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised internal inheritance." That he has, sorry, now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant, and then finally. You have this uh, situation in the book of uh, Deuteronomy when Moses at the end of his life committed, uh, commissioned Joshua and his captains to take the people into the promised land and to, to command them to obey the law of God as they went. And of course we have the great commission of Jesus at the end of his life when he commissioned his disciples to go forth and bring the people to God and command them to obey all that Jesus taught us. So there are some incredible parallels between Jesus and Moses and it all starts with Herod. It's amazing how all of, te- of Scripture tells a single story. You know, the Scripture is not one book. It's actually... 66 books, it's a library It was written by 40 different authors Over a period spanning 2,000 years And yet it tells one story of redemption Today we've seen how the story of Moses Serves as a picture of the ministry of Christ And it was Moses who wrote about mankind falling into sin And the promise that God would send a redeemer right back in the beginning. The first book he wrote in the first few chapters of Genesis. So Jesus doesn't appear in a vacuum. Jesus just didn't appear out of nowhere. Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that Moses wrote down from the first verses in Genesis through to the last verses in Revelation. And nobody can stand in the way of God fulfilling his purpose. Even a man who called himself Herod the Great couldn't do anything to stop the will of God. In his arrogance and in his paranoia, instead of stopping the promised Messiah, Herod became part of the fulfillment of prophecies that introduced our Messiah as the new Moses. And I know that sometimes in life we do go through difficult times. We go through painful times. Sometimes it it feels like, oh, God wants me to do something, but I just can't get there. Well, that's what Paul means when he says, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. God has a purpose for your life, and nothing is going to stand in the way. Let's pray. Now, gracious Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the teaching of Moses that thousands of years ago began with the story of mankind falling into sin. And the promised redeemer, the hope that we have of salvation that would come to us. And it's glorious to see how through all of your scripture it leads to Jesus as being the fulfillment of that promise. And so, Lord, as we, as we celebrate this Christmas season, we're not celebrating the birth of a baby. We're celebrating the birth of our Messiah and our Lord and King. And it's my prayer, Lord, that each of us will declare, just as David did in the waters of baptism, that you are our Lord and you are our Saviour and we will give our life to you. And Lord, we thank you that we have in the story of Herod an example that no one can stand against your will. No matter how smart or clever or spiritual or how great we might think we are or someone else might think they are, no one can stand in your way. And we thank you for the hope that that gives us, that no matter what comes upon us, Lord, no matter what difficult circumstances we find ourselves in, Your will can come through and you can use us, Lord, for your glory. And so we commit ourselves afresh to you, Lord, and we say, Lord, you are our God. We will serve you and we will fulfill your purpose in our lives, no matter what the enemy tries to do to stop us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us today. A special thanks to those that have donated to us online, enabling us to continue our ministry to the local community and beyond. It's because of you that our ministry is possible. Click the link in the description or visit yokinebaptist.church to find out other ways you can support us. If you enjoyed listening to this message, be sure to subscribe and share it with your friends. Thanks again for listening. God bless you.